All right, Romans 9. Romans 9, if you would turn there. So it was fun while it lasted, church. Our unity, I'm talking about. We survived COVID, masks, politics. And now we come to Romans 9. Uh, and we're going to be talking about predestination, sovereignty of God, election over the next few weeks. Uh, you know, we've, it's all part of our growth strategy, actually. Um, I figured if I skipped over these chapters, then I'd have to do some capital campaign for newer and bigger building. Preach through these, we're back to one service. And so... <laughs> So I just chose the easier route for us. Uh, before we, we read this text together, I do want to just acknowledge that likely in a group this size that we're going to have a number of questions, um, and, and that's okay. Um, possibly some of you will have some very strong emotions as we go through this, and I just want you to know we're going to, we're going to give space for that here. Um, I grew up in a church that was not reformed or, or, or did not believe in the sovereignty of God to the extent of like election and predestination. And uh, it really kind of squashed any questions that you might have about that. Um, I vividly remember during a Sunday evening service, uh, our pastor had a time of Q&A, and I asked him about Romans 9.13. I was a high schooler, and I was just curious. I said, could you explain to me what it means when God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? And the pastor he was kind of dismissive. He said, well, I mean, it's, God's kind of talking like, you know, he's, he's choosing chocolate ice cream over vanilla ice cream. And I was like, but he doesn't send vanilla ice cream to hell. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I need more than that. And, and he, was, he was dismissive of me and just moved on. And, and I know some of you are going to have some pretty serious questions, and I hope you do. I hope you do, and I, I want you to hold those as we go through this chapter together. And you'll probably have more questions next week. Hopefully we'll answer more next week. Um, you're likely going to have some negative reactions to, and, and that's okay. Uh, know that I was right there in your shoes and still am to some degree. Um, I'm not sure there's a person in this room um, that could be angrier at the idea of God's election than I was when I was first confronted with it. Um, I was furious with it. Um, one of my friends, he, was, he, was a, he came and he, he talked to me about predestination. It was the first time I've been confronted with it. I was in college and I didn't just shoot the message. I shot the messenger. I mean, I went after him and, uh, and he was just so loving and patient, which made me more angry because uh, I just wanted to argue with him so much. Finally, at one point, this is how angry I was. I got a Bible I ripped out every page in it except for Romans 9, and I gave it to him. I said, since this is your only Bible, here you go. I thought I'd make a Bible for you. Uh, so I was not just angry. I was a jerk. <laughs> I, I was an honest jerk when it came to this issue. It, it, it took me a while of just study, but eventually I want you to know that I came to see this doctrine as beautiful and glorious, uh, which means I then became a new type of jerk. I became one of those obnoxious new Calvinists. Uh, and I'm not sure there is a more obnoxious person on the planet than somebody who used to believe in free will and then they move over to predestination because they won't ever shut up. So I became that for a couple of years. So basically, like, you probably didn't want to be around me and discuss any of this while I was in college. Um, hopefully, I've grown out of that a little bit. Um, I recognize that probably there's a spectrum in here of everything in between. 
that's okay. We're just going to hold that before us. We're going to be gracious with one another. All right, so Romans 9, and I'm actually going to read more than what's in your worship guide. We're going to go all the way through, um, through verse uh, 16. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that, that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not done, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the word of the Lord. And pray with me. Father, we pray that through your spirit, you would give us clarity to these words. I pray that we would come to see you as more glorious. I pray that we would come to understand the depths of your mercy towards us. Lord, and I pray that your word would return or would go out and not return void. But my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So years ago, I was uh, eating at Sanford's cafeteria. So first, just let that sink in. Um, and so I'm at Sanford's cafeteria, and somebody who I've never met before came and sat next to me. And first thing they said was, are you reformed? And I said, actually, I'm Joel. The reason I tell you this story is because it is important for you to know that Paul did not begin his letter to the Romans by talking about predestination. That's not how he introduced the gospel to us. 
For eight chapters, Paul has been slowly and methodically methodically explaining the gospel to us. You know, Romans chapters 1 and 2, there there is a God and that we have sinned against him. Chapters 3 and 4, he talks about how we are justified by, by faith and by God's grace. And then he moved from five all the way through eight, and Paul goes on to talk about our sanctification, about the Spirit of God given to us, how we become children of God. So Paul has given us a very full and robust gospel without ever mentioning a word about predestination. So predestination is not the first thing he comes out to talk to us about, but it is also not the last thing he talks about. Paul discusses God's sovereignty, predestination, before we get to Romans chapter 12 when he begins to unpack living a life of worship. The placement of predestination is very important in this letter. Uh, So although understanding God's sovereignty and election is not necessary for understanding the gospel, we see it is necessary for setting the foundation or the stage for worship, or we'll even look in chapter 10, even for evangelism. Um, I hope you got to see that a couple of weeks ago when um, I got to preach on the sovereignty and the supremacy of God, that the ultimate goal of understanding God's sovereignty and supremacy is doxology. It leads you into worship. And that's why Paul has this placed here. So what leads Paul at this moment to begin talking about sovereign election? Was well, because he is having to answer a question that arises from chapter 8. Really, it's not so much a question as an accusation that people are making against God. You see, in chapter 8, Paul has just given us some amazing promises about God. Uh, They're they're glorious, and and they're so glorious, people are beginning to wonder, can God really do that? Is that really true? Does God really justify everyone he calls? Does he really glorify everyone he calls? If, If that's true, well, then Paul, what about Israel? God called Israel just like he's called us. God called them and promised them glory just like he's called us and promised us glory. But look at Israel. I mean, they're looking around in their church setting and at all their potlucks, there's a lot of pork because there's very few Jews there. It's all Gentiles. They're thinking, if, if God was faithful to his promises, shouldn't there be more Jews in church? Shouldn't they have accepted Jesus as their Messiah? It seems like God can't keep his word. And so that's the question here. Does God actually keep his promises or has the word of God failed? Why should we trust God? It's a serious question. For if God cannot keep his word then, did not, why would he keep it now? Why should we ever trust him? Um, And it doesn't matter how well-intentioned God might be. The question is, does he have the power to do it? Does he have the power to keep his word? We don't care about his intentions. Does he actually have the power to keep his promises? And that's the real issue here. Does God's purpose actually stand? Does he accomplish all of his purposes, as Isaiah says? Now, we still have this question. We state it in different ways, but we still have this question. Uh, One of the ways that I really encountered this question um, was actually when my, my father passed away. And some Christians, they would come to me to try to comfort me. 
And they would, they would say words that they were trying to provide comfort. They were well-intentioned. Um, they would say things like, don't lose your faith in God, Joel. We know that God didn't want this to happen. We know that this wasn't God's will that your father should die. And that was how they tried to comfort. And inside, I was screaming. Because what I wanted to say was, so what you were telling me is that the very God whom I have given my entire life to, the very God whom I have entrusted with my eternal soul, the very God whom I am believing will someday physically raise me up from the dead, that this God, although he really wanted to, he could not prevent a single clogged artery. That's what you're telling me? I'm supposed to put my faith in a God who can't even do that. He wanted to. He, he really, really wanted to, but he just somehow lacked the power to do it. That is no comfort. The comfort is that this was by God's plan, that he is 100% sovereign, even if I might not understand the plan. But everything works according to his purpose. Paul here he is thinking of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, how they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and it hurts him. He is in sorrow. But it is no comfort to come up to Paul and to say, you know, God really wanted to save them. He was really well, he wanted to save them, but in the end, they were just too rebellious. He just wasn't strong enough to save all. He couldn't keep his word to them, although he really, really wanted to. His hands were tied, Paul. Paul emphatically rejects that. He is living proof that God can overcome every hard heart if he wants to. Look what God had done to him on the road to Damascus. There wasn't a harder heart in all of Israel. And God met him, changed his heart drew him to himself, and Paul knows God could do that to everyone should he choose. The reason that all the Israelites haven't come to accept Jesus as a Messiah is not because Jesus or God was not powerful enough to do it, it's that he chose not to do it. For reasons only unto him, but he, for some reason, he chose not to do it. And Paul begins to unpack election here. He says what God did do is he he didn't save all of ethnic Israel, but there's always been an Israel within Israel that his promise has gone towards. That's what leads Paul to verse 6 when he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It hasn't. Why not? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So God's promise is true. He is saving Israel, but it was never for all of ethnic Israel. It was for an elect within Israel. Paul is not teaching anything new here. He's actually already kind of broached this in chapter 4 when he says, now all, everyone who's circumcised is actually circumcised. There's a smaller circumcision in the, uh, of the heart that happens within the ethnically, all the Jewish people who were circumcised. He's already told us this. And now he's really unpacking it. And he does this by going to election and telling us, he gives us two examples of how God chooses 
a smaller group of people, and those are the people in whom his promises really go to. He does this by, by pointing to two groups of people, Abraham's children and Abraham's grandchildren. Um, he actually could have started um, with Abraham himself and talking about how God has elected Abraham. Um, because if you think about it, Abraham, he was just a pagan Mesopotamian. He was an idol worshiper. And God looked at him, not because of any goodness in Abraham, but of all the people there on earth, God said, and I will bless you. Not because of anything you've done. I, will, I choose you. And he grabbed Abraham and he pulled Abraham to himself. Paul could have started there by talking about election, but the people already understood that. They already believed that about Abraham. What Paul is now developing, which might have been new to them, is God's choosing did not stop when he chose Abraham and his family. God now keeps choosing within Abraham's family. He chose between his children, and then he chose between his grandchildren. Those are the examples that he gives. All right, so let's look at those. The first example is of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God chose Isaac to be the child who received the promises of a God. He did not choose Ishmael, even though Ishmael was older. Now, Paul realizes the moment he's given that example, you're going to be thinking, oh, okay, all right. True, God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Yes, they both had Abraham as their father, but they had different mothers. Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian slave. Where Isaac's mother, well, that was Sarah, Abraham's wife. So, of course, God's going to choose Sarah's child. And so, Paul continues, says, well, let's look at their children, the grandchildren of Abraham. This time he brings up Isaac and Rebekah's twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And we read this in verse 10, second part of it. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had, not done, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So now the example that Paul gives, he said, you know, Esau and Jacob, they had the same father, and they had the same mother. They actually had the same womb. And yet God chose one over the other. And it wasn't based on anything that they had done because he did it before they were even born, before they had done right or wrong. God chose Jacob over Esau. Uh, we read that he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Now, Paul here is using a Hebrew idiom here, when he uses love and hate, it's to choose or not to choose. Jesus uses the same idiom uh, when he, uh, in Luke chapter 14, when he said, unless you hate your father and your mother and your spouse and your children, you cannot be my disciple. He wasn't saying you were to have the emotion of hatred towards them. What he is saying, unless you choose me over choosing them, you cannot be my disciple. That's, that's what he's talking about, choice here. That doesn't soften this because God's choice has enormous implications. Enormous implications here. God chose Jacob and did not choose Esau. 
Why? Why does God choose some for salvation and he doesn't choose others for salvation? Feels kind of arbitrary. Is it, is it just arbitrary? Is God, you know, like kind of blindfolded, just you know, throwing darts out there, just see where it sticks? Is he, do you come before me like flips a coin? You know, heads you're in, tails you're out. Even if he did that, I mean, Proverbs 16.33 says every flip of the coin he determines. He's sovereign over all of those things. It's not arbitrary here. God has his reasons, but Paul is crystal clear in saying his reasons are not to be found in you. He has his reasons for choosing, but they're not found in you. His purposes and his reasons for his choice are known only unto him. And so for his own reasons, he chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau. How does that make you feel? Be honest. How does that make you feel? Does it rub you the wrong way? Still kind of rubs me a little bit the wrong way. Some of you already crafting the email to me. Is that, is that why you, the phones are out? That's, it's already crafting. Some of you, you know, you're tempted to start tearing out the pages in a Bible. If you do, get one of the soft cover Bibles that are already kind of dilapidated. Don't get one of our hardbounds. If you're having these kind of reactions, um, it's okay. And what I want you to do is really try to affirm the things that Scripture clearly affirms first. Don't start with your questions. Start with God's declarations as to who he is. Hold those truths first and then get to the questions. And we're going to answer some of these questions in a little bit and, and a lot more next week. So if you have yourself, find yourself having this type of, of reaction, it's okay. Actually, you should take comfort in it because that means you're understanding Paul correctly because he anticipates this type of reaction in you. That's what we have in verse 14. He anticipates you're going to respond with this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul knows that our immediate reaction when we hear about the doctrine of election is to cry out, that's unjust. It's our immediate reaction. Choosing one person over choosing another, not based on anything they have done, just we want to scream that that's unjust. And so Paul actually raises the question and answers it. And, and by the way, this shows here that predestination is not um, how I tried to do mental gymnastics to explain it earlier in my life. It's not God just looking into the future and seeing what you would do and then predestining it. Um, like God didn't look into my future and see that as a nine-year-old child, I would come to accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord at a family devotion. You know, my, my dad praying. We're all kneeling down. My dad on my right side, my mom on the left side praying then. God didn't look at that and be like, oh, he is going to choose me. Angels, bring, bring me the book. And then he writes down my name, Joel, you know, Eugene Brooks. You know, my middle name is Eugene, people. Um, <laughs> writes it down there. Um, I don't, it's not even a family name. It's just, 
But, but God doesn't do that. See what we would do and then predestine it. Because if he were to do that, no one is screaming about injustice. You're like, well, of course, that's as just as you could get. God saw what I was going to do, and then he acted on it. And justice only comes up when it wasn't based on what I would do. His choice came before that. It was predestined. So if you feel this kind of reaction, know you are understanding Paul correctly. He's anticipating this objection here. This question of God being unjust is only raised if election is not based on anything we do. Also, I think it's very important for you to understand the difference between justice and fairness. Um, it's actually pet peeve of mine uh, that Lauren's had to bear the brunt of because I keep mentioning it. Uh, anytime I hear a sermon or I read a commentary, and it's all through them, that they don't make a distinction between those two. And I always it's like, here's another one. I mean, come on. And they're like, the question isn't about is God being unfair? If fairness is defined as God treating all people the same, then God's unfair. And actually, there's so many parables that even prove it. You know, the parable of the talents. God, you know, the master gave one ten, the other five, the other one. That's not fair. The parable of, of God paying out the wages. He, he, you work an entire day, he gives you your wage. You work one hour, you get the same wage. It's not fair. So you're not going to be able to go to Scripture and see fairness as God treating every person the same. That's not what's at stake here. The question is, is God being unjust? Is he unjust? Justice is when God treats people like they deserve. That's justice. So to be unjust is if God is not treating people according to what they deserve. So do people deserve heaven and God's denying it to them? That's the question because that would be unjust if they've earned their salvation. Now, Paul does not actually, I mean, at least when I first read this, I, I thought he was avoiding the question. For years I thought this. Um, so he gets this question, is God unjust? And then he talks about God's mercy. I'm like, huh? He doesn't bring up justice. He talks about God's mercy instead. And honestly, for years I thought when I was reading this, is Paul just kind of changing the subject to talk about something else new? It's kind of like if, you know, Lauren, she asked me, hey, you did remember that we're going out with so-and-so tonight for dinner. I'm like, I love that new dress that you bought today. Like, I just bring up something else because I forgot. And so I just bring out something else we could talk about. And it kind of feels like Paul is doing this. Is God unjust? Let's talk about his mercy, people. It's not at all it. God's mercy is at the very heart of God's justice. If you don't get this, you're not going to understand Romans 9. God's mercy is at the very heart of his justice and election. Paul's point is this. God would only be unjust if he owed us salvation, but he refused to give it to us. But that is not the case. God does not owe anyone in this room anything other than hell. All of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. All of us have rebelled against our creator. All of us deserve his wrath and his punishment. 
And if we really knew the extent of our sins, there's no way we could deny that. God and his mercy doesn't allow his wrath to come on all of us, but he saves some of us. If you believe that God is being unjust by saving some and not saving others, what you are implying is that God owes everyone salvation. But God is not anyone's debtor. Or as we looked at in Isaiah a couple of weeks ago, who has given to God that he should ever be repaid? So God could have justly left everyone in their sins who has rebelled against him. Uh, He was under obligations to no one to save them. And, And why should he? I mean, we have been spitting. Humanity has been spitting in his face since we were created. But out of a heart of mercy, he saved some. Why doesn't he save all? I don't know. I don't know. The reasons are his and his alone. But I can never say it's because he's unjust or that he owes us anything other than hell. He does not owe anyone salvation. All I can do is proclaim his mercy that he does indeed save some when he didn't have to. This is actually one of the reasons that the doctrine of election is so important. Because without it, you compromise the central teaching of the New Testament, which is that you are saved by grace alone. You don't earn it. You are not saved because of anything you do. That's what Paul means here when he unpacks it in verse 16, that it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, your salvation does not depend on your decisions, human will. It does not depend on your exertion or how hard you try. It depends on one thing and one thing alone, God's mercy. Now we'll end here. Paul is quoting from Exodus 33, um, which is one of those mountain peaks in the Old Testament. It comes after Israel's worst sin, when they bow down to the golden calf in chapter 32. They bow down to the golden calf, and God's like, I mean, I just took you through the Red Sea. I just freed you from the Egyptians, and you do this? And he's like, it's time to smite you all. I mean, it's just like, come on. And Moses intercedes. He says, don't do it, God, don't do it. He intercedes. God decides not to destroy the Israelites, and Moses is so bold He not only prays that God would not smite all the Israelites. He says, and God, may I see your glory? Would you be so kind as to show me your glory? That's that's the setting for Exodus 33. And we read these words. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Who is our God? Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? The one who is gracious to whom he will be gracious. The one who shows mercy whom, to whom he will show mercy. Who did not smite all of the Israelites, but saved some. He is the one whom we can trust. He's the one who has never failed us. And if you want to truly see God as glorious, 
You've got to wrestle with this. Pray with me. Spirit of God, we need your help as we wrestle through these things. We are so small. Our minds are so feeble. Would you help us? We want to see you as glorious. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy. There is nothing in us um, that we could point to that has saved us. Nothing in us that would distinguish us from anyone else. But Lord, you were just so merciful to us. And you've drawn us to yourself. And so may we spend a life in endless praise of you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.